Welcome to Behavior Analysis and Practice, the podcast. Behavior Analysis and Practice is the podcast committed to narrowing the research practice gap and demystifying the research process. Each episode will take a deep dive into the latest work published in Behavior Analysis and Practice, the journal, by interviewing the paper's author about the topic. We'll explore the nuances of each paper and ask the questions you wish you could ask the authors after reading the paper. Hello and welcome back to Behavior Analysis and Practice, the podcast. I'm your host, Cody Morris, Assistant Professor of Behavior Analysis at Salve Regina University. And today I'm going to be speaking with Tim Slocum about his article, Features of Direct Instruction, a Content Analysis. Dr. Slocum has been involved with direct instruction for over 25 years as a special education teacher, instructional designer, researcher, and teacher trainer. He is a co-author of the textbooks Introduction to Direct Instruction and Direct Instruction Reading. He received his Ph.D. in special education from the University of Washington in 1992 Since that time, he's been a faculty in the Department of Psychology and Rehabilitation at Utah State University. At Utah State University, he has taught courses at the undergraduate, master's, and doctoral levels on topics including evidence-based reading instruction, single-case and group research methods, advanced topics in behavior analysis, and verbal behavior. Dr. Slocum received the 2011 Fred S. Keller Behavioral Education Award from Division 25 of the American Psychological Association and the 2014 Ernie Wing Award for Excellence in Evidence-Based Education from the Wing Institute. I found my interview with Tim to be fascinating and, and quite educational, so I'm very excited to share it with all of you. Without further ado, here is my interview with Tim Slocum. Hi, Tim, and welcome to Behavior Analysis and Practice, the podcast. Well, thanks for having me on. This is really fun. Yeah, I'm excited to dive into the paper you wrote and the special issue focused on precision teaching and direct instruction published in Behavior Analysis and Practice, the journal. But before we jump into the the details of your article, we always love learning about our, our guests. And so would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself, your current role, and why you're interested in this type of research? Sure, yeah. I'm a professor of special education. Um, Been here at Utah State University for 31 years, so I can't claim to be the new guy on the block anymore. Using that as an excuse as to why I didn't know something uh, is wearing a little thin here. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I've been in in the education game now for more than 40 years and uh, started actually at Morningside Learning Center, the predecessor of Morningside Academy. Um, I uh, got a job there as paraprofessional and was amazed at the impact that we can make in people's lives through really, really high quality instruction, changing lives. And it's kept me enthusiastic ever since. Wow. The so were you already on like the education route or like what what was your training or experience before winding up at, at Morningside? Completely unrelated to education. I was doing political work, very concerned about empowering people to vote and to be informed. And um, then when I started teaching at Morningside, I realized that literacy is just such a tremendous empowerment. The difference in a person's life being literate versus not and having, you know, the other skills that give them access to jobs and choices in their life and information uh, was more uh, impactful in terms of my values than anything else I could do. That makes sense. Were, were you, was there anything about Morningside that, that drew you in other than this seems like an opportunity to, to 
sort of have a, a, a job was, or was it just kind of cool, complete happenstance that you wound up working there and then you're like, Hey, this is really uh, cool and meaningful. Oh, there's a whole story there. Uh, yeah. I knew Kent Johnson um, socially and through uh, political work uh, and um, I just needed a part-time job. And he said, Hey, you could be a aide in the classroom. Um, so I just happened to know him. I didn't know thing one about behavior analysis direct instruction, precision teaching, anything. I'd never even really thought about education before. And so then I parachuted into, <laughs> into Morningside. And uh, there I was in the middle of all of that. Uh, and, you know, I have to say it still forms a lot of the foundation, well, the whole foundation of, of what I do in education. So your interest in direct instruction specifically, then that probably started right away um, with your experience at Morningside, or was that something that you came back to, or what, what was that relationship like? No, I mean, one of the first things I started doing was teaching direct instruction programs and seeing, I mean, in a very direct way, seeing the impact. I mean, actually seeing the relationship between what I did and what the students were able to do. And so in shaping their reading repertoires, it shaped my teaching repertoire and it really, really, like I said, impacted my values that to have the actual experience of making such a big difference in a way that I could see directly. When you sought to pursue further formal education and, and, and go on to get a PhD and everything like that, were you specifically seeking programs and opportunities or mentors to sort of further your experience with direct instruction and in precision teaching? Or did you have to circle back to that after having completed your PhD and everything like that? Yeah, by the time I uh, went to grad school, first master's and then PhD at University of Washington, I was pretty much dyed in the wool behavior analyst uh, first and foremost, and then with special interest in direct instruction and precision teaching, you know, as technologies within that larger umbrella. And um, so I was definitely seeking that out. And I was very fortunate that there at University of Washington, Owen White was there, who was quite a mentor um, in precision teaching, as well as just the world and uh, general wisdom, as well as a um, Professor uh, Joe Jenkins, who was a direct instruction person from way back. That's awesome. Uh, it's cool to hear the background and hear how you've sort of been in with direct instruction the entire time. It, through these interviews for this special issue focused on direct instruction and precision teaching, I've been asking really most guests about how they came to focus on these particular topics. And everyone has such a sort of different story. It's, it's always fascinating to learn about that. And sort of tying into the overall theme here, all of the articles uh, at this part of the season of BAPCAST are, are tied into a special issue published in Behavior Analysis and Practice, the journal focused on direct instruction and precision teaching. And, and um, we'll talk about your specific focus within that special issue in a moment. But I am asking every guest to provide just a, a general definition of direct instruction uh, in the event that someone's not listening to these episodes in, in, in order. So would you mind just sort of orienting us to what direct instruction is before we dive into the details of your paper? Yeah, actually that's a good question because uh, the term direct instruction gets used for a number of different things that are quite different. So off the top of my head, I would say direct instruction is a form of systematic and explicit instruction that features a careful analysis of the content to be taught, analysis of the concepts and exemplification, um, and a very specific uh, style of uh, juxtaposing examples and non-examples to create faultless communication. And then typically the delivery includes uh, small group instruction with rapid uh, interaction between the teacher and the student, 
with a high rate of active student responding and explicit corrections, um, programs being carefully developed and then field tested and revised for efficacy. Um, programs also featuring regular uh, uh, progress monitoring assessment and explicit uh, correction loops if a student is not doing well on a mastery test, an explicit uh, uh, procedure for remediating. And you'll notice, by the way, in my, in my uh, unrehearsed uh, characterization of direct instruction, the choral responding is just a delivery method. Mm. It's very um, salient. People notice it right away. And the scripting is very salient. People notice that. But those are nothing like defi defining features. Those are um, a specific way of delivering good instruction to uh, small groups of learners. That's helpful, uh, helpful foundation for this interview of understanding sort of everything that direct instruction encompasses. Now, your paper specifically focused on features of direct instruction within a content analysis. And it, within your definition, you sort of talked about direct instruction as both a way of, of programming instruction and delivering instruction. And it sounds like this content analysis piece is, is more so focusing on the, the components or, or planning for programming the instruction or, or what you're going to be teaching. Within the rationale of why it's important to program instruction in a specific way, you talk a lot about the need for efficiency in teaching and how that's a, a major theme or, or goal of direct instruction is the efficient teaching. Can you talk about what efficient teaching means and why that's so important for learners? Yeah, I think there's, there's two levels here. One is um, simply to teach any complex content. Um, and I'm thinking because of my background, largely academic content, although it applies to other things. Um, there's too much to know to actually succeed in learning all the content if it's not efficiently taught. You just can't get through it. So the classic example is learning to read. There are too many words in the English language to memorize them all slowly, laboriously. You just won't ever get to the end. So in order to succeed at all, in order to be effective in teaching somebody to read, you need to be efficient in order to get through it. That's level one. And then level two is, um, the learners that I've worked with throughout my career are in a remedial situation. They may have special education labels and specific needs in that area, or they may just be sort of behind in, in instruction without any particular label. And so for them, the game is always catching up. There's this term, the tyranny of time, that time is always against learners like this because they have to learn more than their typically developing peers in order to get to um, where they should be at like the end of 12th grade. So efficiency is right in the center of succeeding with our, our mission. I love that phrase, the tyranny of time. I haven't heard that used before, but yeah, it, it feels like if you're a teacher, you're always working against time and, and wanting to cram in as much information and as much learning as you can within the confines of the time that you're given. To maximize efficiency of instruction, you've got to target generative learning outcomes or, 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 or train generativity. Could you talk about what that term means and, and, and how that's targeted? Yeah, um, and we, we use lots of different terms, generalization, generativity, um, R2, and lots of other things that, have, that are synonyms. But the basic idea is 
for a given amount of time that I spend teaching you, how much can you learn? Can you learn to do things that I haven't even explicitly taught? That would be generativity. If I teach three examples of a concept and you're able to respond correctly to 10 different examples that you've never heard in, until then, that were not actually part of instruction, that would be generative. If I teach three examples, you learn those, and then that's all you can do. That would not be generative. So generativity, of course, is a continuum, right? Where you can be higher and higher and higher on that scale. And the goal of content analysis is to figure out what is the fewest number of things you can teach hmm. to get the most student repertoire. Makes sense. So it's really almost a, a cost-benefit analysis of uh, how can I make this as efficient as possible? And as you were saying, when you talked about the importance of efficiency, if, if I'm trying to train a student to, to read, I, I don't have enough time in a lifetime to teach them every single word individually. And that's with typically developing learners, much less someone who's going to have any specific difficulties. And so if, I, if I'm trying to train someone to read in keeping with that example, it's got to be structured in a way that's going to create these generative outcomes. Am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, that's exactly right. And it sounds like the name of the game and being able to do that is this content analysis. Um, for those that aren't familiar with the topic, can you talk about what a content analysis is and then how you might pursue doing one? Yeah, so it, it matters um, how we think about and how we organize the content we're gonna teach. And an example that might be uh, familiar to behavior analysts is it matters how we think about behavior, right? As behavior analysts, we tend to think about behavior in terms of antecedents, behaviors, and consequences. And when we categorize behavior, we tend to do that according to the function of the behavior. Right. And with those kind of conceptual tools, we can solve a lot of problems, right? We can solve problem, novel problems that we had never come in contact with before or had never been trained how to solve those problems because we have these efficient ways of organizing how we think about behavior. Same thing in any other content. So how do we think about reading? Do we think about it as a word by word by word thing? in which case we would have very low generativity, or do we think about it in terms of, oh, we could teach the letter sound correspondences and the skill of blending, and then students could read many words that they've never been taught before. So that would be highly generative. Uh, the content analysis is finding or creating the most generative relations we can so it's looking at what is it we wanna teach, looking through that and trying to find generalizations that can be taught. And the bigger the generalizations, the more efficient our teaching is gonna be, the more generative it'll be. And here's the really important point. That's not obvious on the surface. Just going into some new content area and starting to generate examples and non-examples will not necessarily lead you to the best way of thinking about the overall content. You may not see generalizations that could be taught. And uh, often it takes an expert in an, in an area of content in order to understand what are the generalizations here. So a the first point of the article in, in Behavior Analysis and Practice the journal, um, was to sort of alert behavior analysts that there's a thing here to think about before you start designing instruction. It really is important to think about what are the generalizations that could be taught and maybe talk to content experts and really spend some time on that. Um, all too often, I think that that's not on people's radar. I agree, and that's helpful clarification. The structure and the sequence 
and, and what you're targeting matters. And I was speaking with a, another guest that I had on for the special issue about, in, in many ways, having to plan for the, the content that you're going to be teaching and, and understanding the, the, the effects that the targets are going to have on generative outcomes is almost like having a compass or a map. And if we're walking through the woods, I can feel like I'm being productive by taking one step forward. But if I don't know where I'm going, it's certainly within the realm of possibility that I'm walking in circles and really not at the end of the day making any real progress. And I see that a lot or think about that a lot with some ABA providers. And I know that there's pressures to immediately hit the ground running and show that we're making progress with the client. Look, we're, we're helping with letter identification or sight words or whatever it may be. But are the things that they're making progress in leading to generative outcomes that's going to help them gain, you know, uh, the, the, the skills that they're ultimately going to need to be able to do something like reading, right? Sight words, sure, that might be a helpful component with depending on the skill level. But are those targets actually, uh, at the end of the day, helping build these generative outcomes? You talked about the importance of, of maybe collaborating with or seeking content experts. And, and in a moment, we'll go through the examples of a content analysis you've done with various topics. But are there published resources or guidebooks or anything like that, that that are common in this area of, of, of targeting um, generative outcomes that people should be aware of? No, unfortunately, there's not. Um, like, it would be great to have an encyclopedia where you could look up some area that you're interested in teaching, and it would tell you, here are generative relations that could be taught. Uh, but that doesn't really exist. So kind of a combination of two things. One is looking in the literature, talking to people, finding out uh, what is known. And the other is having to do it oneself. And you want to avoid the latter <laughs> because in a lot of complex areas, there is a lot known and we're not gonna figure it out just looking at it. Even if we're quite clever people and we have really good behavior analytic skills and tools, things like how does language work? What are the components of language that will generate large repertoires? Or the same thing for math, uh, um, or the same thing for earth science or any other content area. There are people, there are whole fields that study these things. There's a lot to know about that stuff. And I think when we're interested in teaching it, if we can tap into that, we're way ahead of just looking at it and uh, thinking about it for 10 minutes and then diving into instruction. So perhaps the skill or the thing that, that our listeners should take away and sort of seeking immediate action is becoming familiar with this process of a content analysis, but also understanding the importance of seeking consultation or collaboration with, with subject matter experts. Because as you were saying, there's entire fields. So, you know, some people might think, well, my, you know, my PhD program didn't teach me all of the specific nuances for something like with uh, math facts. Well, it's like, well, I think, as you were saying, I think people are getting their, their PhDs in that specifically in, in many situations. And so it's, it's not reasonable to assume that you're going to have gotten all the information you needed to do something as complex as this, plus all of the sort of behavior analytic skills you need in a, in a PhD. And so it sort of highlights the importance of collaboration. Exactly. And within your paper, you, you sort of give some examples and non-examples of content analysis around a few different subjects. Was there a specific reason that you chose the, the subjects or were they, are these common subjects that are going to be 
targeted or, or what's the rationale for including spelling uh, of rhythmic facts or science, basic language and narrative language? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, there is no single um, overarching rationale for all of them. What I was trying to do in the article was use some that are from classic direct instruction programs. So reading, spelling, uh, earth science are good examples of where some of the well-known direct instruction programs have those content analyses. So I just drew those from the programs. Um, and then I wanted to expand out from there. So um, the basic language and more advanced narrative language skills, um, I thought those were nice examples because on the basic language area, it's an amazing area of a kind of a confluence between direct instruction analysis and behavioral analysis where the two have uh, come to very similar understanding of what's fundamental in basic language. Um, the advanced language one was a, that is narrative, was a nice example because it directly involved uh, a behavior analyst uh, collaborating with a uh, person with a background in speech language pathology. We'll go through each of these content areas to sort of talk about some considerations you provided around doing a content analysis. Before we get off of just the general topic of content analysis, I wanted to ask a, a question. In the paper, you, you refer to uh, content analysis or a piece of content analysis being like sameness analysis. Can you explain what the, the sameness analysis means and, what, and refers to? Yeah, and there's a lot of terms in this area that are synonyms or partial synonyms, you know, where they overlap. And one term that had been used quite a bit in direct instruction, um, not quite so much anymore, but for a time, is sameness analysis. And that's another way of talking about generativity. In order for something to be generative, there has to be something the same about all of the examples of that. So for example, if we're um, reading words, the letter to sound correspondence is more or less the same. And the blending process is the, more or less the same across words. That's why we can generalize. Generalizations are based on some feature that's the same. And so direct instruction um, designers use the term sameness analysis, meaning we got to figure out what's the same across lots of different examples. Are content analyses used to build tracks or strands? We had a previous guest on the show, Trina Spencer, who talked about ensuring that there are sort of themes of instruction throughout the uh, throughout learning opportunities to to sort of facilitate these generative outcomes. Are those connected? They can be. You could have a track that um, builds a particular generalization based on the sameness. Um, other times, many tracks come together to build a generalization. Uh, because the tracks are teaching prerequisites and components of some larger skill. And it's the larger skill that has the, um, where the sameness uh, can be seen. So this is sometimes just a track and it's sometimes the whole program. That's extremely helpful. Now, again, in the paper, you go into specific content areas. What I loved about this section of the paper you talk about the common mistakes you may see within these areas. Um, and then you talk about really how you could target generative skills within an area as the alternative. And so the first example you provide is related to spelling. Could you talk about some of the common mistakes in targeting spelling skills and then what a more systematic 
approach would be to target generative spelling? Yeah, for sure. The most common overwhelming mistake is not teaching spelling explicitly at all. And then the second level mistake is teaching words as if they're unrelated to one another. Um, so having themes uh, where we're gonna do spelling words that are all related to Halloween or Christmas or animals in the barnyard or something like that, which has nothing to do, which does not build any kind of generalizations. Um, and then a fair, uh, a fair number of uh, programs are based on phonics spelling, which is a great foundation. That is the foundation of generalization in terms of spelling, uh, which is in some way similar to the phonic analysis of reading, where the student learns to hear a word and hear a sound in the word, match it with a letter, and so on through the word. Uh, and that's a great foundation. Um, if it stops there though, it leaves you uh, unable to spell more complex words. Uh, and so there's another analysis called morphemic analysis that is highly generative and enables uh, us to spell thousands and thousands of complex words that would not be spelled correctly with a phonic analysis alone. With a morphemic analysis, what, what is it adding on top of a phonic analysis that makes it more uh, generalizable? Yeah, the easiest way to think about it is uh, multisyllabic words. And to be a little bit more precise, uh, morphemes are the little bits of words that have meaning. So you can think about prefixes, suffixes, and base words. And it turns out in English, morphemes tend to retain, retain their spelling. So a given morpheme will be consistent in how you spell that. So if students learn to spell the morphemes, they'll be able to spell that morpheme correctly in many, many different words. And then there are rules that are uh, quite consistent about how to join morphemes together. For example, when you double a letter, when you add on another morpheme, or when you drop an E, or when you change an I to Y or, or Y to I. Um, and there are many rules related to morphemes that allow the, the learner to spell words that would not be predictable from phonic analysis alone. So morphemic analysis sits on top of phonic analysis and goes much farther. Uh, the fact that morphemes tend to have consistent spelling, um, although in English, not always consistent pronunciation, uh, allows a lot of little tricks to uh, learn how to spell words that are very difficult otherwise. A little example of that trick is, you know, in English, when you add er on the end, meaning somebody who does something, for example, a farmer is somebody who farms, right? Uh, a professor is somebody who professes to know something. Uh, a surveyor is somebody who surveys and so on. Sometimes it's spelled E-R and sometimes it's spelled O-R. How do you know which, right? At the phonic level, there's no way to know. But at the morphemic level, and this is one of those little tricks, if there's a shun form of the word, for example, professor, profession is a real word, therefore it's O-R. Uh, farmer, farmshun, that's not a word, so it's E-R. That's, that's a cool trick. Uh, I was not taught that in school, so I would not have known that uh, right away. So that, that's fascinating. And what I love about this spelling example in particular is you're, you talk about the need for words to be re related when you're targeting them, so either phonetically or morphemically. Yeah, in your non-example, I think that the instructors might think like, yeah, zoo, zoo animals, those, that's, that's related, right? Um, but it's not related uh, along the crucial areas that it needs to be related, right? And so, I, I, again, I love this example. I think that 
you can look sort of surface level and go, yeah, holidays, animals, those things are related. But you're saying to create generative outcomes, they need to be related phonetically or, or morphemically. I gosh, what how do you say that one again? Morph- <laughs> Morphemically. Morphemically. And yeah, Cody, you're making a great point that uh, I want to go back and underline exactly what you said. That yeah, zoo animals are all related. There's a sameness there. Right. So you could think, oh, I'm doing a sameness analysis. Unfortunately, that sameness doesn't allow you to derive spelling of the next zoo animal or the next farm animal. Right. It's a sameness, but it's not related to the behavior we're teaching. And so we need samenesses that enable the learner to spell new words they've never spelled before. And that's where the phonic and morphemic analyses come in. In the program, Spelling Through Morphographs, they teach 750 morphographs. And these are all little short things that are easy to, easy to learn. And 14 rules. And that allows the, the student to spell over 12,000 words. So you learn 750 little short like bits of words and uh, that generates 12,000 correct spellings. The order of magnitude on that is insane. The, the, the efficiency of something like that. And yeah, I love the distinction again between the zoo animals uh, and, and the, the, the phonic uh, relations because your target, when if you're, tar- if you're, if you're targeting spelling, your goal is spelling, not training the distinction between zoo animals. That may be a lesson, right? In a, in a different category. But when you're targeting spelling, you need to be looking at creating generative outcomes relating to spelling, not, not um, creating uh, stimulus classes of, of whatever your, your theme of your spelling words may be. The, the next section is arithmetic facts. Could you talk about some common mistakes within this category and, and a better way of approaching it? Yeah. <laughs> It's kind of interesting because there's a pattern, there's a sameness about the common mistakes, right? The first common mistake is not teaching it at all all, and thinking that we don't need math facts anymore because we've got calculators, Um, which is wrong for reasons I won't go into, but uh, probably most people get that. Anyway, the second error is treating each one as a completely separate thing. So we have 100 addition facts from zero to nine. Uh, and 100 more subtraction facts from zero to nine. And so the student has 200 things to memorize. Uh, Turns out that with a good content analysis, we can reduce that memorization tremendously. So first of all, you've got your plus zeros and plus ones, where we can teach you a little rule about how to do those, right? Plus zero, it's the same number. Plus one, it's just count one more. Same thing on minus zero and minus one. So we've gotten rid of those, but we still have all the other ones. And here's the real uh, core of this content analysis is the idea that there are these fact families. So for example, the numbers two, three, five go together in addition and subtraction. With those three numbers, you can derive two plus three is five, three plus two is five, five minus two is three, and five minus three is two. So there's four facts that you can get out of just memorizing those three numbers. And if we do that, along with those rules I mentioned earlier, all the student has to do is memorize 36 of these families. And then they can derive 200 basic math facts, 100 addition, 100 subtraction. So 36 families versus one, uh, 100 independent, seemingly unrelated facts. Yep. Actually 200 because we have subtractions. Oh yeah. Wow. Yep. So (laughs) if we're going to be super precise, it's not, the numbers aren't exactly that, but you get the idea. Yeah. It shows again, the order of magnitude here and, and, and and the efficiency. Then the next section is earth science. Again, could you talk about common mistakes and, and the better alternative? Yeah, and included earth science because again, that's something where 
somebody who doesn't know a fair amount about earth science might be surprised that there is some way to get efficiency in teaching earth science. Generally, it's taught as a whole bunch of separate topics, right? We're gonna teach about the weather, and then we're gonna teach in a separate unit about currents in the ocean. And maybe sometime we'll teach about plate tectonics. Maybe we'll, part of our weather unit is thunderclouds and how they work. And these are all separate units that are kind of separate topics. Um, but, but without any, it, without enabling the student to use what they learned in one to better understand the next one and the next one and the next one. So the alternative to that is, is understanding that there are some underlying processes that manifest in all those different areas. And the prime one that I used as an example in earth science is convection. So convection accounts for how water moves when you're boiling water on the stove, how air circulates in a room when you have a heater vent. Uh, it explains how onshore, offshore winds change during the day. It explains how thunderclouds work and how hail is formed. It explains the winds and how they differ at different uh, latitudes. It explains ocean currents and it explains movement of plates in plate tectonics because there's convection in the uh, magma of the earth, the mantle of the earth, excuse me. Um, and that's not all, that's just a, a sampling of the applications of, uh, of convection. And I guess just rolling along the theme here um, at the different content areas, that the next section is the basic language, which again, you said is sort of a uh, interesting topic because of sort of the overlap between what many behavior analysts end up working on and, and, and the utility of a content analysis here. So could you talk again about common mistakes and, and, and a better way of approaching it? Yeah, well, a common mistake in teaching basic language is to treat um, each word or each language concept as a separate thing that needs to be taught independently and not find samenesses or commonalities, not find the key things that you can teach, which can be generalized to many new situations. And in this case, the generalization that we really want to focus on is what language skills can you teach that will make it easier to teach future language skills or other skills? So this works a little bit differently because in language, you teach some language and then that, once it's learned, becomes a tool the student can use to learn lots and lots of other things. And so there was a direct instruction program called, uh, originally Distar Language became Language for Learners or sorry, language for learning. Um, and that was written before relational frame theory was developed. Turns out that the direct instruction uh, instructional designers identified these relations that are key to enabling language learners to do lots and lots of different things. Things that would later be named relational frames. And so the program language for learning teaches initially uh, the relationship of is, the coordinate relationship. Because once you teach that to a student, you could then use that to teach lots of other things in a autocletic frame that Skinner described in verbal behavior. Um, and it turns out that the program language for learning teaches examples of all the families of relational frames that RFT folks have identified. And so it's just an amazing uh, um, example of two separate traditions independently discovering the same thing because they were interested in the same functions. They were interested in the same language functions. Um, and so, especially for behavior analysts, it's great to realize that yes, the analysis of language that we're familiar with through RFT is super helpful as a content analysis 
for teaching language. I love that view of, of the utility of RFT in this particular situation. And I find it fascinating that direct instruction designers had already identified many of the same relations and sort of came to separate but similar conclusions on those things. Um, and I, again, I think it speaks to the importance of not targeting sort of arbitrary words to create fluency along if you're not targeting uh, related uh, or sort of these critical uh, targets within the instruction, you're just going to have built, if you train 36 words, you get 36 words and, and, and that's it. Whereas if, as you're saying, if we can target certain uh, critical uh, words that are going to create these frames, you know, the, the, the outcomes or the generative outcomes of learning you get for free is, uh, I don't know if unlimited is quite the right word, but it's, it's going to be a much larger, much more uh, complete outcome. Yeah, we get pretty close to unlimited. It, it, I'm tempted to say infinite because <laughs> once you know the relationship is that I can hold up any object and say, this is a, and give the name. Um, and so that's the generativity of that is limited by the number of objects that I can hold up. <laughs> which is the big number. Maybe right. it's not infinite, but it's, a, it's an awful big number. All right. Uh, yeah, that's fascinating. And then to build on this, you talk about the, or you give examples around narrative language. Can you talk about that? Yeah, narrative language is another interesting one. And it's so cool that you had Trina Spencer uh, on a pr previous edition of the, uh, of the podcast. Uh, because she's one of the people or the person that brought this into behavior analysis. Um, linguists have known for a long time about something called story grammar. I mean, that goes back to the seventies at least. Uh, but behavior analysts didn't tend to talk to linguists a lot. In fact, there was some level of animosity because linguists were associated with Noam Chomsky and, um, and so on and so on. And, you know, uh, Sometimes there's attitude that we don't have anything to learn from those people. By the way, I'll just do a little tangent here. We might, some, some behavioralists might say, well, they're doing a structural analysis of language, and we're interested in a functional analysis of language, as if the structural analysis has nothing to do with the functional analysis. It's like, oh, that's a completely different thing, so we'll ignore that. I think that's a tremendous mistake because the commonalities, the generalities, the samenesses, the things that drive a generativity analysis tend to be structural. So when we look at the structure of narratives, linguists uh, uh, noticed, hey, all narratives have something about setting. They have something about um, about uh, characters, they have something we might call a plot and there's some sort of resolution. And then we can break this down and they have into a lot more nuance and a lot more elaboration to, to talk about more elaborate narratives. But those are the basic fundamental pieces. So if we can teach students to generate those components of a narrative, then they can generate narratives based on any experience that they've had or could imagine. And Trina has shown through her research that uh, these are quite teachable, right? Very, very, uh, her, her program is very effective at teaching these components. And then yes, indeed, students can generate novel narratives based on anything that they can come up with. And one thing to mention about narrative, as I'm talking about it, it might appear to be, this is about telling fictional stories, which is nice for kids and cute and all that, and nice for people who can make a living as an author. But narrative also includes nonfiction narratives. It includes um, a kid coming home and the parents saying, what happened to you today? 
and the child being able to coherently relate a series of events that happened. This can be critical for, for example, uh, a child saying, you know, something um, difficult happened and relating that clearly to the parent or other caregiver. Um, lots of uh, very, very important things that a child could say. And if they can say them clearly in the narrative form, um, then others can respond appropriately. So anyway, the point is this was long known to linguists, but was almost completely unknown in the behavioral community. And uh, Trina, longtime behavior analyst, uh, collaborated with a speech language pathologist. And to some extent, the content analysis came from speech language pathology. And the instructional analysis, the ability to actually teach this stuff effectively came from the behavior analyst. I love the sort of plug for the, the need to look at what other fields are, are doing and, and understand that there are often many things that they have to offer. In Trina's episode, she talked extensively about collaboration across different disciplines and uh, she have talked about uh, much of her success being built on her ability to collaborate, see what other fields are doing, and be able to add what behavior analysts do well into that mix, which is typically strategically targeting sort of incremental skills to build to a larger goal. And, and Trina talked about the need oftentimes to collaborate to help figure out what that larger goal is. Historically, maybe that's not something that behavior analysts have been so great at. There are, of course, tools, not, you know, the, this content analysis included, but as you said, this is uh, things there are, these are strategies that maybe other fields have been utilizing for a, for a long time. And I love the distinction that you made or sort of the clarification you provided around structural analyses and functional analyses are not necessarily independent of one another, right? They're, 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 they, they may be reliant on one another and, and certainly related. And so not to just simply discount looking at the structure of communication. And I'll, and I'll also add, I, I love this narrative language piece. I often think about you know, the goal of most behavior analytic treatment is ultimately to help build independence and autonomy and in, in whatever subject you're looking at, right? If you're looking at academic skills, you're trying to build independent academic skills in a number of areas. And, you know, if you're working with, with people who maybe have uh, severe disabilities or something like that, and so maybe the, their targets aren't necessarily as academic, narrative, being able to communicate something coherently about your day or what you experienced has to be at the top of the list of some of the most important skills someone would need to have to be able to live as independently as possible. As you said, it's not like they're, they're simply telling make-believe stories. It's being able to recount what they've experienced, which is going to help inform you know, their values or their, their feelings about certain things and, and be able to recount what, what they've done throughout their day, which is, is absolutely critical. And so I love that the focus and the, the recommendations provided around how you can systematically target that skill. Yeah, thanks. And yeah, if you've worked with learners who don't have great narrative skills, um, they'll be telling you something and you won't be able to follow the story, right? Because you don't know where this happened or who was involved. They start using pronouns without first naming um, who this pronoun refers to. And um, the order of events is completely jumbled and so on. And so it takes a lot of questioning to figure out what actually happened here. And as you say, this is important. This is a uh, critical skill for independence. I think I have some friends that don't do so great in telling coherent <laughs> stories. And so maybe, maybe some, some folks uh, focused or interest in this can help them because it's not a, it's not a skill that everyone just seems to develop on their own. Well, maybe you can get 
get a copy of Story Champs and just run it with your, uh, you know, at a party. (laughs) There we go. I love it. Um, You'll certainly be invited back. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Whatever everyone always says when you go to social events, are you doing an analysis on me or something like that? Well, (laughs) it's about time I start slipping them in there and doing it right and helping them develop skills. At the end of your paper, you provide sort of a succinct step-by-step process of conducting a a content analysis, and you provide a really helpful figure to sort of depict what this process can look like and and sort of some of the interrelations there. The first step is related to engaging and generating content. Could you talk about what that step is and and maybe go through this figure a little bit? Yeah, Uh, thanks for asking. Yeah, that first step is all about learning the content in enough depth so that you, the instruction designer or the teacher, can um, identify what are the possible generative relations. And as these examples that we've talked about so far on the podcast illustrate, you could know all the math facts. And it might not yet be obvious to you that there's a generative way of teaching them effectively. So that's what this step is all about, is it may involve reading research or reading um, uh, texts about the content area. It may have, as we've talked about, it may involve collaboration with experts. It may involve just your own looking at it and thinking deeply about it. And I wanna emphasize, One of the big outcomes I hope for from this article is just knowing that this is a thing, knowing that when you're looking at what you're going to teach, we need to look at it in terms of how can we teach some generalizations? What are the generalizations here that could be taught? And so this first step is doing whatever you can do to discover those. And I want to emphasize again and again that um, just looking at it and thinking yourself about what generalizations can I see in this content is one component, but I listed that as the third one for a reason, because as I've said before, there are people who have done a lot of work in a lot of these areas and have come up with things that we're unlikely to think of on our own. And anyway, this step kind of ends with generating not one, but several possible analyses of the content that you can then compare and say, if we taught it this way, how generative would that be? If we taught it some other way, how generative would that be? So for example, we might look at reading and say, for the reading goals that I have for this student, if we teach word by word, how generative will that be? If we teach phonics, how generative will that be? And compare. The second step is to look at the different ways that you might organize the content and identify which will get you the farthest, the fastest. And then the third step is, is to empirically test the analysis. And again, this is so important that we cannot assume that a beautiful logical analysis of what students should be able to generalize will actually tell us what students do. As behavior analysts, right, we are very based in an empirical analysis of human behavior. And Beautiful as the logic of generalization may be, it always comes back to, has the teaching enabled the learner to do this? Um, So all of the rest of the article is about how we arrange ideas. And uh, we can't stop before we emphasize, it's not just about ideas, it's about student behavior. And so we have to have an empirical step in there. And this goes, by the way, for all instructional design, all of the beautiful uh, exemplification rules and juxtaposition rules and so on and so on are great. 
as front ends for us to enable us to develop programs that have a good chance of empirically showing the generativity that we hope for. That distinction is incredibly helpful. I think the, the, the reality that there are multiple possibilities within a content analysis of, of how you're identifying different sameness relations and the fact that you can create these nice sequential, uh, logical, I should say, uh, connections that seem like they're going to produce uh, efficient and generative outcomes. The reality is you've got to test that out and, and confirm that to be the fact. And so is that one of the one of the main reasons you need to identify multiple uh, possible content analyses with, within, a, within a topic is just so that you have different ones that you can assess along the way? Yeah, that second step of having multiple analyses and comparing them kind of is important from two angles. First, it's um, important to have multiple options and compare them so you can pick the best. So you don't just take the first thing that occurs to you and assume that that's the best way of doing it. Mm. So that's kind of on the front and on the logical end. And then what you pointed out is the second important piece of having multiple analyses. When you empirically test something, you may need to go to plan B. Uh, and we could do a whole podcast about the ways that a uh, beautiful logical analysis may not prove out in terms of human behavior. There are rules that are too complicated to teach or the teaching of them takes more time than actually just teaching the items themselves. And so we have to be always concerned with the practicality of this. Is this, is this actually more efficient than not teaching a rule, but just teaching the items? If there's only a few items, uh, it might not be worth it to teach the rule. And most rules have exceptions. And so we have to weigh the, um, the number of items that are correctly derived from the rule compared to uh, the number of exceptions where the rule will mislead the student. Classic example of that is the I before E except after C rule. Turns out there's a lot of exceptions to that. It doesn't really do you much good. Yeah, uh, that, that's, that's a funny example. Uh, and there are so many fun little rabbit holes I'd love to go down and follow up questions. It's a fascinating topic. And I think one that the listeners of Babcast would be quite interested in. But as you said, there's a whole, these sort of many of these topics are entirely different episodes and we are close to time and I want to be respectful of your time. And so as we wrap things up, are there any resources or recommendations that you might provide to someone who's a behavior analyst who's interested in learning more about direct instruction or content analyses, other than, of course, checking out this recent special issue that's published in Behavior Analysis and Practice the Journal? Depending on the, what they need, there's a number of different resources. As a teacher, the first resource I think would be the direct instruction programs because there are already highly developed, extremely elaborate, extremely sophisticated programs for teaching reading, language skills, math, writing, uh, et cetera. And uh, those are cited in many of the articles in the special issues. So I would direct a teacher to those in the first place. Don't reinvent the wheel, use those programs. I will give a caution. They are so intricately designed that it's sometimes hard to see on the surface what they're actually doing. Um, and it takes some careful analysis to see really their efficiency and their power. So that's the first thing is if there's a direct instruction program in the area you're teaching, it would be wise to use that. Second, if you're interested in more on the content analysis or instruction in the area of reading, there's a book called Direct Instruction Reading, 
And if you're interested in math, there's a book called Direct Instruction Math. Then if you're interested in really getting into the nuts and bolts of designing instruction, there's a book called Theory of Instruction by Carnine and Engelman, sorry, Engelman and Carnine. Um, and again, that's referenced in many of the articles in the special issue. Awesome, thank you for sharing those. We'll be sure to link to those in the show notes so that the listeners have easy access to them. And with that, I think we're all set. So Tim, thank you so much for your time today and coming on the show to talk about this article. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thanks, Cody. It's been great to talk to you. And uh, yeah, thanks for um, publicizing. It's so important for behavior analysts to do uh, really efficient instruction. Thank you for listening. Before you take off, please remember to subscribe and like us on whatever podcast player you use to listen. Also, find us and follow us on social media to stay up to date on our latest episodes and to suggest recent bad papers that we should review. Finally, I'd like to thank a few people for helping create this podcast. Thank you to Stephanie Peterson, the editor of the journal Behavior Analysis and Practice. Thank you to ABAI for sponsoring this podcast. And thank you to my assistant producers, Elizabeth Nervaez and Jesse Perrin, as well as my production assistant for this episode, Chloe Calkins. As always, thank you to Jim Carr and his band, New Latitude, for letting us sample their song, Cruising Altitude, throughout this podcast.